0: Welcome back to the Groundless Ground podcast, the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe to, download, and review The Groundless Ground on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn, and of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? This episode features Dr. Anna Lemke, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University Medical School, and the author of the massively influential book, Drug Dealer, MD. Dr. Lemke shares her immeasurable expertise in psychiatry, dual diagnosis, and chronic pain treatment with a heavy dose of unmitigated truth-telling. Our dialogue is a thoughtful, no holds bar look at the following issues. The toyotization of medicine, the devastating effects of opiate overprescribing and ineffective chronic pain treatments, the discontents of addiction and dual diagnosis treatment, the problems with widespread naivete about cannabis and CBD use, and the inequalities of our healthcare system. Dr. Lemke and I share knowledge about integrative treatment and the need for psychiatry, psychology, and general medicine to embrace it or become irrelevant. I think you'll find this episode eye-opening, enlightening, and timely. Anna Lemke, thank you for being on the Groundless Ground podcast. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited about having this conversation with you for many reasons. I've been waiting to talk about addiction psychiatry. Well, we're going to talk a lot about the opioid epidemic. Sometimes I think that's gotten a lot of play at this point, And I know you have a lot of wisdom in many different areas.
1: I'm happy to talk about whatever you
0: want to talk about. So your book, Drug Dealer MD has been out for three years now. Yes. Anything changed since then in the opioid prescribing world?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. Opioid prescribing peaked in 2012, and nationally, it's gone down about 25 to 30% since then. We are prescribing fewer opioids. Um, That's a, a reason for optimism in and of itself. Unfortunately, there's still enormous variation in opioid prescribing state to state and county to county. Uh, we've still got counties, for example, and states like the state of Alabama prescribing more opioids than the nation was prescribing in 2012. So we've got this incredible variability. Yeah, the, the numbers are, are staggering when you look at them. When opioid prescribing peaked in 2012, as a nation, we were prescribing about 81 opioid prescriptions per 100 persons. That's gone down to about 59 nationally opioid prescriptions per 100 persons. But in the state of Alabama, they're still prescribing 121 opioid prescriptions per 100 person. So you can see just the enormous variability and the fact that there are regions of the country where we really haven't made any headway. But more broadly, we've certainly grabbed the national attention. People understand that we have an opioid epidemic. They appreciate that opioid overprescribing is the origin of the epidemic and continues to be a significant problem, even though now we're in the second and third waves of this problem with heroin and illicit fentanyl. I'm encouraged because their awareness has increased. We're beginning to make some inroads in terms of how doctors are prescribing uh, these medications. We're We're certainly making inroads in terms of access to treatment for opioid addiction. So yes, it's baby steps, but it's sort of baby steps in the right direction.
0: Alabama's interesting. Do you think this is because the medical culture is behind the curve Or do you think it's because Alabama has one of the highest rates of poverty and psychosocial distress of probably any state? What do you think?
1: I think it's the latter. So I think when we're seeing ongoing opioid prescribing, where we're seeing the most uh, significant opioid-related deaths, these tend to be in rural areas, um, especially now. Uh, They tend to be in highly under-resourced areas, in areas of poverty and social dislocations. In the beginning, largely an epidemic of white middle class, now we're seeing brown and black people, and uh, people living in poverty, uh, being disproportionately affected by this epidemic. You know, and we see that with all social ills, right? That they, they tend to gravitate toward the most disadvantaged and most vulnerable in our communities. Maybe we can tease something apart.
0: I feel like there are sort of two levels of the opioid use problem in the country. There's the medicalization level for people who have chronic pain disorders and other kinds of pain disorders. Then I feel as though there's something that's akin to what happened in rural areas with meth where opioids were alongside this booming meth use in these areas and it didn't really have anything to do with any particular medical problem that somebody was having.
1: I I see your point. I think it gets to one of the, the core questions about the opioid epidemic, this issue of supply versus demand. Is this primarily a problem of increased access to opioids through overprescribing and through an exploding illicit Mexican cartel or Chinese import cartel? Or or is this really a demand problem where we have a cohort of individuals uh, with numerous uh, biopsychosocial risk factors for addiction who are sort of ripe uh, for this problem and, and would have addiction problems to some substance no matter what? The answer is that it's a combination problem. If you look at some of the analysis of this problem, what is interesting is that the demand side, which is to say the kind of uh, psychosocial vulnerabilities, uh, uh, multi-generational trauma, really only accounts for about 20 to 30% of the risk. The larger proportion of the risk really is due to increased access to opioids. Increased access to any addictive substance is one of the biggest risk factors for getting addicted to that substance, and one that people often underappreciate. So, if you live in a neighborhood where drugs are being sold and used on the street corner, you're more likely to use them and you're more likely to get addicted to them, and that can be really independent of, of other risk factors. So yes, the kind of psychosocial distress and this vulnerable population that would exist no matter what is a part of the puzzle. I think the larger piece of the puzzle here is really the flooding of opioids into the general population through overprescribing and now also through these various illicit pathways.
0: You coined a great phrase, I loved it, the toyotization of medicine. And you coined that phrase four or five years ago. As somebody who is a clinician and is continually working with the interface that they're having with their PCPs and other kind of specialty physicians, don't you feel as though this problem may be getting worse rather than better?
1: Well, I do believe that the Toyotization of Medicine problem is no better. What I mean by that phrase is that basically we have evolved an industrial line approach to medical care where every patient has a different bo- a person, a different doctor working on a different body part. Oftentimes, you know, one prescriber doesn't know what the other prescriber is doing. There's so much churn in medicine, uh, not only through all the different prescribers, but also through the different um, ways in which people are obtaining their healthcare, having to change providers because of change in insurance plan, change in employment, and then medicine itself is going through an enormous upheaval where various integrated healthcare centers aren't even really sure whether we're going to have Medicare for all in the next 10 years or whether we're going to continue with our fee-for-service system or whether we're all going to try to become Kaiser and do population health. So there's enormous churn, there's chaos, there's uncertainty. And of course, you know, the, the ones who get hurt the most in that process are our patients themselves. And this has uh, contributed enormously to this problem of overprescribing, not just of opioids, uh, but of many different types of medications, because it's sort of like the one concrete, tangible thing that a doctor can do for a patient in a discrete 10 to 15-minute visit that will be reimbursed based on essentially whether or not you manage some sort of prescription. And if you didn't manage a prescription in that interaction, many times as a physician or nurse practitioner, you know, you won't get reimbursed. This is all driven again by this sort of industrialization of medicine, the reimbursement structure, the revenue flows, and doctors get paid for prescribing pills and performing procedures. They don't get paid for thinking about how to help people in the long term.
0: Which is really difficult with the population of patients I see who have complex trauma symptoms that run the gamut from mental health issues through autonomic nervous system disorders, immune disorders, it's, it's really almost impossible for a physician to do something in 15 minutes. For someone who's coming in in such a highly activated or fully collapsed state, sometimes my patients will come, I, you know, I'll have them bring a list of the medications they're on, And I will tell you, it's not uncommon for people to come in on 15 medications. And I even see this in people 65 and above who, frankly, should not really be on much medication at all because they're much more vulnerable.
1: It's a tragedy of modern medicine. And out of sheer necessity and horror at the harm that we're doing to patients, ended up dedicating my career to this problem of overprescribing because uh, we, are, we are literally poisoning people. And it's so sad to me because I went into medicine to help people and I know the vast majority of my medical colleagues did the same and yet we're really caught in this system where we're, we're not only minimally able to help our patients, but we are actually harming them. And the way that we're harming them is through this horrible, horrific polypharmacy. This is essentially the cornerstone of my mission and my professional career, trying to stop this and trying to help improve the system of Western medicine so that we don't have patients on multiple prescriptions that are causing all kinds of morbidity and mortality. I mean, it's just absolutely tragic. I would also add that not only is it difficult to do it much in 15 minutes with a complex patient who has a chronic illness, but it's even harder to do if you don't actually have a relationship with that person. And and that's what we really lack in medicine. We lack the opportunity to have ongoing trusting relationships with our patients that allow us to have the kinds of hard conversations that we really need to have in order to convince patients that there's a better way to go than taking 15 different types of medications.
0: Well, that's a beautiful segue into where I want to go, which is fleshing some of what we've just talked about generally out in a more specific way. I want to sort of marry the stats and information that you've just given about medicine and where medicine has gone. I think you and I are both including psychiatry and psychotherapeutic treatment When we say medicine, we're including it, yes? Of course, yes. I want us to kind of work a territory that goes back and forth between two things. I see as the last thing to go, even after somebody has been well for a while, is the illness narrative as a fixation and an identity, which I think in some ways, I can't really say it's the fault of the patient, but I do think that the medical model has put patients in a position of having to fixate and be attached to an illness narrative in order to get care.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Because it's not a wellness system, it's actually a sickness system. That's right. So I thought you and I would kind of tread this territory. How does that sound to you?
1: Yeah, that's great. It became apparent to me about 10 years or so into practicing psychiatry that my field had inadvertently created this language of pathology that patients were using to construct an entire identity and an entire life narrative. What became really fascinating to me about this language and this narrative was that it was not only used to retrospectively construct an autobiography, it actually predicted future response to certain situations. So for example, I began to appreciate that if I had a patient who saw themselves as ill, as irreversibly damaged to typically some kind of chemical imbalance, who identified with certain types of psychopathologies and could not be convinced otherwise um, that, that they had these various psychopathologies, that they needed to see doctors, that they needed to take medications, then they would apply that narrative or that self-identity even going forward into certain situations and see themselves as victimized even when they weren't being victimized. So they would interpret situations based on that self-identity and self-narrative to their detriment. That's the saddest part about it is that the victim narrative and the illness narrative as constructed like that, is not very adaptive, right? Because people aren't able to move forward in their lives if they always see themselves as victimized, as ill. They're continually reliant on other people to help them, to prescribe for them. They lose the ability to search within themselves for that life wisdom that we all possess. You know, if we calm ourselves down long enough, What I've noticed in my own practice with people who really have this,
0: if you had them list the varying kinds of trauma, these are the same group of people who probably were compromised in early childhood, either with an adverse environment or early childhood trauma. And they early on lost that connection between the wholeness of the physical system as an organism, as an organism that actually can move around in the world without threat and really didn't develop a relationship with internal resilience at all.
1: Yeah, I I think that's probably true. I also think that there's this pathological attachment in that the only way that they really know how to create an attachment with other people is through their patient role or through their victim role. Because that does work so effectively as a participant in the modern healthcare system, I mean, people get a lot of resources and they get a lot of attention and it fosters this non-stigmatized identity. You know, it's very reinforcing. So that I think then, then perpetuates the problem. I think as psychiatrists and as therapists, we have inadvertently contributed to and colluded in this process. So I think there are a lot of wonderful therapists out there, whether they're psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers or what what have you, whatever their training is, who don't do this. But unfortunately, I think there are a lot of therapists out there who kind of glory in creating this victim narrative in collusion with their patients, in which they as providers get to always be in the empathic, compassionate stance. They never challenge that narrative in any way. That's, by the way, very good for business because people keep coming back for that. It feels really good. And yet it doesn't move the patient forward to wellness. You know, It doesn't really improve their lives. You know, this is, I think, one of the great crimes of psychotherapy as evolved over the last 100 plus years, is that we've we've really aided and abetted this victim narrative.
0: Well, that's also possibly because traditional psychotherapy has been verbal. There really hasn't been much they can offer. In fact, I would say that there's something analogous, really, here to what a physician would think of as a (laughs) medication. Right psychiatry and psychology has thought of words as the only treatment and those of us who use integrative models we know that there's a body and people don't get better when all you have to offer them is talking yeah that you have to keep them in a victim role because there's nothing to talk about otherwise
1: yeah so that's interesting i mean i have to admit i don't know much about that so what what do you offer bodily for people
0: we could go there later Cause I feel like we're in a really, really good place to do the following. Would you be so kind as to define chronic pain?
1: Sure, so chronic pain is pain that's experienced on a daily basis for at least three months. There are some definitions that require it to be experienced on a daily basis for at least six months, but basically normal tissue healing is thought to take about three to six months. And once you have pain beyond that, unless there are ongoing injuries happening, then this has probably evolved into some kind of chronic pain syndrome.
0: We're talking about chronic pain now because many of the opioids that were prescribed for patients were prescribed for this population.
1: That's really where this opioid overprescribing problem took off when prescribers started to give opioids, not just for acute pain, not just for end-of-life pain, not just for perioperative pain, but also began to prescribe it at higher and higher doses for longer and longer durations in the treatment of chronic pain. I often see a
0: link with patients between autoimmune disorders and chronic pain. And I imagine you might see that link. Can you talk a little bit about how autoimmune disorders might give rise to chronic pain or the other way around?
1: It's certainly well known that opioids affect the immune system. So if you take opioids daily for a long period of time, it can suppress your estrogen, it can suppress your testosterone. It's also been shown to potentially slow the healing process. So people who get opioids during surgery may well heal more slowly than a comparable group that doesn't receive opioids for a similar intervention. There was also a study that just came out showing that people who take chronic opioid therapy, are more susceptible to community-acquired pneumonia. We have more and more evidence emerging that the opioids adversely affect the immune system and make people more vulnerable to slow healing and to various infectious diseases. Is that true also for dental procedures? A lot of opioids are prescribed
0: by dentists.
1: I haven't seen specific data on dental procedures. It wouldn't be any different, right, whether it's a dental procedure or a knee operation. So that's important data that's coming out now on on the impact of opioids on the, on the immune response, and essentially opioids suppress the immune response. People with immunologic disorders being at increased risk for chronic pain and increased risk for being prescribed opioids, I don't actually know much about that.
0: Do you know whether there's any correlation between the role of trauma and chronic pain?
1: Yes, so there's lots of evidence to show that um, people who develop chronic pain, more than 50% of them, have some kind of co-occurring psychiatric disorder. Um, And of course, we know that a major risk factor for developing addiction is a co-occurring psychiatric disorder, as well as childhood trauma. Those are risk factors for addiction. Childhood trauma is also potentially a risk factor for developing chronic pain. So all of those things are woven together. Chronic pain, co-occurring mental illness, childhood trauma, addiction, risk of addiction.
0: Since you are an addiction psychiatrist, I'm hoping you'd be willing to talk a little bit about addiction. I think most people in a pop psychology way, when they think of addiction, they think of 12-step. And It's kind of unfortunate, I think, because 12-step has created a particular sort of vision of what addiction means and is. And we do have a disease model of addiction, but even that they sort of have taken and made it to something other than the disease model of addiction. So would you explain the disease model of addiction?
1: Definitionally, addiction is the continued compulsive use of substances. Um, Some people would also throw behaviors into that, but uh, we can stick to substances. Substances is a term for drugs and alcohol. The continued compulsive use of substances despite harm to self and or others. So that's just the basic definition of that category of psychopathology, which is included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. In terms of the disease model of addiction, that's primarily um, hinged on the neuroscientific findings in the last 50 years or so. People exposed to chronic heavy drug use have brain changes that are not evident in people who are not exposed to chronic heavy drug use. And those brain changes primarily consist of changes in the reward pathway and in dopamine transition and serotonin transmission, such that when those individuals are not using their drug of choice, they're in a dopamine deficit state, which is to say that their ability when they're not using drugs and as a result of drug use is that it's easier for them to experience pain and harder for them to experience pleasure. They have a changed hedonic set point as a result of their drug use, which drives craving and drives relapse even after sustained periods of abstinence. So that's essentially the disease model of addiction.
0: The disease model of addiction does not mean that there's a genetic correlation that if you had an alcoholic parent, you were going to end up being an alcoholic.
1: No, it does not. I always have to say biology is not destiny. Genetics are one of many risk factors for developing addiction. So if you have a biological parent or grandparent, specifically with alcohol use disorder, because that's where we have most of the evidence, that you are at increased risk compared to the general population of developing an alcohol use disorder, even when raised out of that alcohol-using home. It's not a modeling or a nurture phenomenon. It's really something biological. But even though genetics is a risk factor uh, for addiction, it's obviously not the only risk factor. As I've said, co-occurring mental illness is a risk factor, poverty, unemployment, trauma are risk factors. And then one of the most important risk factors is, again, just simple access to a drug. If you have easy access to a drug, you're more likely to try it. If you have ongoing access, you're more likely to continue to use it and to get addicted based on that alone.
0: And each of the class of drugs has a different effect on the dopamine network, correct?
1: Right. So dopamine is thought to be the final common pathway for most addictive substances. It's become a kind of a a neuroscientific currency for how addictive something is. But of course, all of these drugs work on different systems and receptors in different ways. Alcohol, for example, is intimately connected to the endogenous opioid system, as well as triggering increased dopamine. You know, methamphetamines and other stimulants stimulate not just the release of dopamine, but also modulate norepinephrine and serotonin. But the final common pathway of all of these drugs of abuse is thought to involve dopamine, although dopamine is not by any means the only neurotransmitter involved.
0: I'm a little confused about the term pseudo-addiction. What is pseudo-addiction?
1: So pseudo-addiction is a term that was essentially made up by David Haddox, who is a physician and a pain specialist who was employed by Purdue Pharma and became one of their major executives. He wrote a case report based on a pain patient who uh, was displaying all of the signs and symptoms of uh, drug-seeking behavior that we associate with addiction. David Haddox and his co-author claimed in this case report that he wasn't actually addicted, he was pseudo-addicted because he was really in pain. And if only his pain had been adequately addressed by increasing opioids, then he wouldn't have displayed these drug-seeking behaviors. And so this became really a gold mine for opioid manufacturers in their marketing of these drugs, in which they encouraged prescribers to go up on the dose, that, there, that no dose was too high, and that patients who displayed signs and symptoms of addiction were not actually addicted. They were pseudo-addicted, and the solution for that would be to prescribe more opioids. Unfortunately, this turned out to be a great tragedy in terms of these patients and the opioid epidemic because. In all reality, these patients probably were uh, getting addicted to the opioids being prescribed to them and needed treatment for that. And instead, they just got more and more opioids. Today, we're now facing several generations of patients who have been on very high doses of opioids for decades and are really struggling uh, as a result, not just with addiction, but just the, the terrible physiological sequelae of dependence and withdrawal. If you look in the literature at who supports this notion of pseudo-addiction, you'll find that industry-sponsored physicians will write favorably about pseudo-addiction. Researchers and prescribers and healthcare providers who are not industry-sponsored, who are not receiving money from opioid pharma, do not believe that pseudo-addiction is a real term or a real phenomenon. It it became tragically an excuse to ignore addiction and to continue to perpetuate uh, the opioid problem. How does
0: an addiction psychiatrist get someone off of opioids?
1: Well, one of the first things that an addiction psychiatrist needs to do is express optimism because there's good treatment for opioid addiction. Uh, Number one, if the patient meets criteria for having become addicted to the opioid. If this is a chronic pain patient who is not clearly addicted, but is opioid dependent and has been on high doses, One of the first things I tell those patients with chronic pain on high-dose, long-term opioid therapy is that um, in my clinical experience and, and also in the research world, emerging data shows when patients decrease or get off of opioids, many instances their pain actually improves. This is something I think it's important to say up front in order to enlist motivation. If the patient is addicted, I, I like to express optimism about the treatments that we have for opioid addiction. If the patient is dependent but not necessarily addicted and has chronic pain, I would like to encourage the prospect of lowering the dose or getting off altogether as a way to actually target and improve the pain.
0: Sometimes, you know, I'll have a patient who goes through some kind of major surgery or something like this, and the surgeon will prescribe Narco or Oxy for a few days, and they will give them a very small amount and say, take this for a few days. Do opioids actually help more than extra strength Tylenol? and some kind of NSAID at a slightly higher dose where you'd be getting the non-inflammatory properties, plus you'd also be getting pain-reducing properties from these two. I still don't understand why people think they need opioids at all.
1: It's a great point. So when we're talking about using opioids to treat acute pain, we're talking about using them for you know no more than about one to six weeks. In that instance, opioids have been shown to be better than placebo very short-term for moderate to severe pain. Now, whether or not they they are better than Tylenol or NSAIDs, really, I think it depends on the severity of the pain. If you have people who have very serious operation or a very serious traumatic injury who actually tolerate opioids, and so this is an important point, a lot of people don't actually tolerate opioids. They they vomit, they get itchy all over their body, they feel delirious. So if you're in that category, even short-term, opioids will not be your friend. But for the subset of individuals whose brain and bodies actually like opioids and for whom they're actually good analgesics, pain relievers, then they potentially are a good treatment for very severe pain, very short term. When you described originally your, you know, these surgeons who are giving you know, enough opioids for two to three days, actually my heart sang hearing that because it's a big improvement on giving you know, the Costco-sized bottle of opioids to last a month after surgery. So the simple fact they're, they're only getting two to three days is actually a huge improvement in practice. And I think there is legitimate and valid use of opioids short-term for people who tolerate and get analgesic relief from them in the days after a serious surgery. Now, one of the major problems that we have had is that we really have no idea which surgeries require opioids, even short-term. You know, so for example, a laparoscopic gallbladder removal probably doesn't require any opioids at all. And some of the really good work that's coming out now across the country in different research settings and clinical treatment settings is trying to figure out how many opioids actually make sense in the wake of X surgery. And this is really good research and important research. What they're doing is they're they're looking at different types of surgeries across the board, and then they're actually asking patients how many opioids they're using. And what they're finding is most patients are using many fewer opioids than they're given, partially because we've been giving way too many. But based on what you know, the average person without an addiction disorder and without a chronic pain disorder and without a, let's say, co-occurring mental health disorder is taking in the wake of surgery is starting to give us some good idea of the amounts of opioids that make sense for the average patient after a given surgery. And no surprise, it's a lot less than we've been prescribing. If we're gonna transition away from acute pain and look at chronic pain, I think what what is really an important message for people to understand is that there is no evidence that opioids work for chronic pain. And the long-term risks associated with taking opioid daily for months at a time are enormous there was a the space randomized controlled trial just came out it's a gold standard study it was the first study that took a realistic primary care based population of individuals divided them into two groups gave half of them opioids and half of them tylenol ibuprofen and what they found was that over the course of that year opioids did no better than tylenol so that's really really important By the way, neither opioids nor non-opioid medicines helped very much for chronic pain. But really importantly, opioids were no better than Tylenol. Both were minimally effective. And the opioids had many more side effects. So this is the take-home message. Opioids don't work at all for chronic pain. And they leave you with a lot more problems than you started with.
0: Logically, my next question would be, what does successful chronic pain care
1: look like? Well, that is the million dollar question. And what I say to patients, because I think it's just an important place to start to set expectations, is that we don't have very good treatment for chronic pain. We didn't have very good treatment prior to the 1980s, when opioid prescribing started to escalate. And sadly, we don't have very good treatment now. And we've essentially reverted to what we were doing prior to the 1980s and 1990s, which is multimodal interdisciplinary treatment for people who have devastating chronic pain conditions. What does that mean? That means individual and group psychotherapy. That means various forms of mind-body work. That means massage therapy. That means acupuncture to some very limited degree non-opioid medication when tolerated but essentially we don't have a lot of good treatment for chronic pain and it's devastating because we have a lot of individuals in this country who are struggling with chronic pain
0: so i actually see patients who come out of kaiser's chronic pain program which by the way is a very good chronic pain program
1: they have a couple programs but there's one where they actually make them get off of opioids When
0: I ask them what they've done, because primarily people who've had injuries that either didn't heal or there was a secondary injury and the psychological trauma from the first injury didn't heal. And so they developed a chronic pain problem after the second injury. The other group of patients is medical trauma. Uh, mm -hmm. So they either have surgeries that don't work a lot of opioids are given for people with back surgeries that don't work. Mm-hmm. People get worse, they don't get better. Mm-hmm. And so they have the trauma from the surgery as well as the trauma from the treatment after the surgery. Right. And they don't do the kinds of things you just mentioned acupuncture, massage, physical therapy. And so the illness narrative sometimes gets overcoupled with the chronic pain problem. Even if the chronic pain is slightly better their mind is still telling them through fear of the pain coming back. And so they're caught in this loop. They come out of this program at Kaiser where they do a lot of CBT. They actually have mindfulness, which is fantastic. They have meditation class, yogic-like stretching class. But somebody who fails that particular line of treatment, they then tell them that they have a serious psychological problem. It's something about who they are and some fear that they have of being well. And you and I have already discussed the illness narrative, but what they do is they pathologize it so completely the person feels like they've completely failed and there's nothing else they can do.
1: So what do you find moves that forward? How do you help those people? So it
0: depends on the person because I practice another modality, which is not seen very much yet. Although I have a lot of psychiatrists referring their patients to me now. It's called somatic experience therapy, which works on autonomic nervous system dysregulation and bracing freeze in the tissues and the muscles in the system. So it allows the individual to become aware of the bracing patterns in the physical system A lot of chronic pain patients, they have so much fear of the pain that everything is braced and tight and you know the pain is worse. So this is a particular modality that allows them to have full awareness of that and to unwind the freeze and collapse on the fly right there in the moment and allow the ANS to begin to function normally. And most of these people have trauma history. Mm -hmm. So this kind of autonomic nervous system dysregulation was in the system a long time before they ever had an injury. It's similar to the military where somebody who grew up in an adverse childhood environment and already has that kind of dysregulation in their system, they go into the field of combat, they're more likely to come home with PTSD. Right,
1: so that's really interesting. It sounds like you help people reconnect with their bodies and regain an awareness of their physical bodies. Is that a fair description?
0: That's the skill set we deliver, but the actual treatment itself relies on the fact that the autonomic nervous system really knows how to unwind its own dysregulation. The mind has to be able to partner with awareness rather than the habit narrative that would be driving the system into either highly activated or collapsed states. It's one of the reasons
1: why this modality is practiced by psychotherapists. So interesting, uh, because, you know... to me, the, the contribution of CBT is that it helps people reconnect with their thinking minds. DBT helps people reconnect with their emotion minds. And it sounds like what you do helps people reconnect with their physiologic autonomic arousal system. Well, those of us in the like psychotherapeutic end of this, yeah.
0: we're using the skills from CBT and DBT. What we're doing is we're not saying it's all about your thoughts. We're actually saying, right. look what's happening in your body, body right. in yeah. your system, when this is happening. And the fix is not by changing the thought. The fix right. is actually awareness in the physical system, the body. which right. actually is an organism that's very smart and knows how to heal mm-hmm. itself.
1: You know, one of the theories about people with chronic pain is that they're actually physiologically more sensitive to pain than people who don't develop right. chronic pain. So you probably already know that. And so how to help those types of maybe very sensitive pain sensor people connect with their body in a way that isn't focused on the pain. That's what I think is so helpful to chronic pain patients, including the ones who come off of opioids, to learn how to connect with their bodies without this kind of single-minded attention on the ways in which they're experiencing pain. I take it that that's kind of what what you help them with as well. Very much so, yes. This is
0: also very useful for addiction treatment.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: I thought we might spend a little time since my experience with addiction treatment is it's frankly a
1: mess. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the system is certainly a mess and, and addiction. Everybody needs something a little bit different. There's not one cookbook approach that you can apply to sort of 90% of the cases and see a response. Um, And it is, for most people, a chronic relapsing and remitting disorder. Although if you can get abstinence at five years, then there's a pretty good chance you'll have lifetime recovery. We could talk about AA and NA. It gets a lot of bad press now, but I can tell you that for a subset of severely addicted individuals, it's an absolute lifesaver. And, you know, how it works is a bit of a mystery, although there's lots of new research on that. And one of my theories is that part of the way that AA works when it does work is that people do adopt a new stigmatized identity as a person with addiction, and they invest a lot of resources in the meetings and in the group in order to build the social capital and the social goods that they benefit Mm -hmm. from participating in the group, without which it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work for them and it wouldn't work for others. So although AA can be criticized as a cult or that people get addicted to AA, you know, what I say to that is, well, in a way that's what makes it work, that people stop investing in drug seeking and their drug lifestyle and instead invest in this mutual help society, which is a much more adaptive addiction, if you you want to call it that,
0: it's a frame, it's sort of an identity that they've been holding on to, which informs them about who they are as a person. So I become very interested in someone who doesn't really have any desire to use anything at all Mm -hmm. and hasn't for a very long time. And yet their entire social structure and their whole identity Mm -hmm. is built around, it's an illness narrative for me. Yeah. I'm very interested in what works for people. And there are many, many ways to be able to do addiction treatment. Although I have to say addiction treatment for dual diagnosis patients is very difficult. There's not a lot of resource. And I know that's one of the things that you're very involved in is dual diagnosis treatment.
1: Yeah, so but I wanna go wind back for a second to your comment that the addiction narrative is one of our illness narratives. And I would absolutely agree with that, but I think that the addiction recovery illness narrative is different from the illness narratives that we often see in medical care in in a really important way, which is that the addiction recovery narrative fundamentally says that the individual is responsible for their lives and for their behavior. And if you look at the 12 steps, the fourth step is all about what are your character defects how did you contribute to this problem and that's what's missing from the illness narrative that we've created in many treatment settings in terms of psychotherapy or even just in western medical care in general you know i think there can be adaptive illness narratives and in fact the whole idea of you know the recovery narrative is one that is gaining ground for this very reason, it is an illness narrative, but it's an illness narrative that says that the individual at the end of the day is responsible for their own recovery and should look at their defects and what they have contributed to the problem. And that that's very different from the victim illness narrative that we see so often in medicine and in psychiatric care.
0: Point taken. Thank you. That was a beautiful clarification. I really appreciated that. You're very welcome. <laughs> You and I could probably say anybody who is struggling with a substance probably has some kind of underlying other issue that's feeding the need for the substance.
1: Right. This is a question that has occupied my thoughts for many years now, Uh, this whole notion of what role psychiatric illness plays in the development of an addictive disorder. One of the theories is the self-medication hypothesis, this idea that patients who are addicted are actually self-medicating an underlying psychiatric disorder. This is a theory that was originally hypothesized by Sander Rado. He was a psychoanalyst and one of Freud's acolytes, lived in the early 1900s, and he first coined this phrase. And then there was a lot of research in the 1960s on the self-medication hypothesis, again, as an explanation to understand why it is that so many people with addiction appear to have a co-occurring psychiatric disorder, because the epidemiology on that is robust. Some 60% of people with addiction have a co-occurring psychiatric illness. Some 60% of people with psychiatric illness have a co-occurring addiction. But I think One of the traps that people can get into vis-a-vis the self-medication hypothesis is this idea that they're actually medicating themselves with the substance. Because what we know, and this is well supported in the evidence, people who have a psychiatric illness and use substances have more episodes, more hospitalizations, more medication non-compliance, more treatment refractory illness. They have much worse outcomes. So it's not really self-medication, even if the origin is to treat an underlying psychiatric symptom. The other myth that I think it's important to talk about that can arise from the self-medication hypothesis is this idea that, well, if you would just treat my underlying depression or anxiety or trauma, then I would stop using. And that is Mm -hmm. also not true. What we see is that even when we're able to treat the underlying psychiatric disorder, people tend to continue their addictive behaviors, that what we really need to do is treat both the addiction and the mental illness concurrently in order to get any traction on either of those disorders. That's why really the gold standard of care should be integrated treatment, people getting addiction treatment at the same time that they're getting psychiatric treatment, but also educating patients that using substances in the short term might feel like it's targeting the symptoms, but in the long term will actually make the symptoms worse, and that even if we were magically able to take away their underlying depression or anxiety or trauma, once they've walked through that addiction door, they have a separate disorder. Addiction has a life of its own. The other thing that's important to recognize is it's not just that psychiatric disorders make people more vulnerable for addiction. It's that addiction can actually make people more vulnerable to psychiatric disorders, right? So we know that people who use a lot of marijuana are more likely to develop some kind of psychotic symptoms.
0: This was my next question, by the way. I've actually seen several cases of this in adults, not just in teens. Cannabis use, harmful side effects, it's readily available now,
1: extremely potent. Right. How are you all dealing with this? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's, it's tough because weed used to be this relatively benign drug, and now it's not. It's a hard drug. Uh, The enormous, you know, THC content in cannabis today and marijuana today means that people are more likely to get addicted because it's more potent. They're more likely to suffer psychotic effects because it's more potent. You know, we're seeing many more patients who have cannabis-induced psychosis, which, by the way, sticks around for a while and sometimes doesn't weigh at all. Yeah, Frightening. Yeah, there are several famous studies showing that the earlier you use cannabis and the more cannabis you use, the more likely you are to develop full-blown schizophrenia type disorder not clearly causative. They may be correlative in the sense that maybe there were some early prodromal symptoms that caused that individual to turn to cannabis and they would have Mm -hmm. developed some kind of schizophreniform disorder anyway. But I think it's really a feed forward cycle that in many instances, cannabis actually is causative or is sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back, that last little bit that tipped people over. And yes, we do see you know people who develop like full-blown schizophreniform disorders. More often, we see that it's reversible that if people can abstain for at least a month from cannabis, we see that their psychotic symptoms largely subside or go away altogether. If they use again, then it comes back again. Using again is sort of also definitional for cannabis addiction, right? Continued use despite consequences. Psychotic symptoms are, are clearly consequences this is what we're seeing as a result of this more potent uh, cannabis that's on the market and ubiquitous and very normalized. Kids today see it as not harmful. People see it obviously as medicine. That makes it all all the harder to convince people that they're actually harming their brains.
0: If someone has a pain disorder and they hear about cbd oil and they hear that cbd is beginning to show some kind of pain relieving properties not thc but cbd what do you tell them
1: well what i like to emphasize to patients is that cbd in its pure form as far as we know is not addictive as distinct from thc so that's that's the good news what's not clear is whether or not it really does any good Most of the placebo-controlled trials that are out there are not very convincing or reliable in terms of benefits of CBD. On the other hand, my thinking on it is that if it's not harmful and the patient experiences it as helpful, then it might be helpful with one enormous caveat, which is that these are not well-regulated drugs, so you don't actually know what you're getting. And if Mm -hmm. you think you're getting pure CBD, chances are You're not because most of the CBD formulations are actually combined with THC. What you're feeling in terms of effects may well be the THC that you didn't even know was in your CBD oil. We know THC is highly addictive.
0: So I don't know how this question is going to be for you. I've been asking all of my psychiatry colleagues this question. The whole microbiome science is beginning to spill over. Sometimes I think gastroenterologists are going to co-opt my work in 15 (laughs) years. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You're a professor at Stanford Medical School, and I'm wondering whether or not this is beginning to get any kind of traction in terms of addiction psychiatry or psychiatrists in general starting to think about the microbiome, maybe prescribing, whether it's prebiotic food or some kind of probiotic for their patients to see whether or not that has a decrease in anxiety, depressive symptoms. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that a very fair criticism that can be leveled at medical schools across the country is how little attention uh, medical schools pay to nutrition in any form. There is an attempt now to remedy that, um, just like we're trying to teach medical students how to screen and intervene for addiction, we're actually starting to teach medical students about nutrition, including at Stanford with with a new nutrition curriculum that's being implemented there. So, So that's the good news. But I think in general, you're right, Uh, you know, physicians across the board are very ignorant about nutrition and about the microbiome and what role it plays, uh, with the exception of people who are actually specifically researching that topic. You know, in psychiatry, and probably anybody who's interested in prevention has become interested in the microbiome, just like they're desperately interested in finding something that will help their patients be healthier without adding yet another toxic drug to the cocktail that they're on. I think that psychiatrists and in general uh, people who practice medicine are very interested You know, in this whole area. Are we being educated on how to prescribe probiotics? No, we're not. But, you know, I, I have more and more of my colleagues who have told me, oh, you know, I went to this really great nutrition seminar and I learned about the interaction between uh, nutrition and mental health. So, of course, you know, we're going to be the last to get there, <laughs> but it's, it's, ha- it's happening. It's happening. That's the good news. What we're seeing in in medicine today is that people who really want to get well and also have the means are going outside of medicine to get well. And what that means is that if medicine doesn't change, they're going to find themselves really treating the most vulnerable people who don't either have the economic means or the education to be able to go anywhere else. And anybody else who has the privilege and the means to choose is going to choose somebody else. So if we in medicine don't get it together and actually provide the kinds of treatments that people will see help them in the long run, it might be the end of medical treatment. There may be a two-tier system. There is already, you know, where people who can go outside of medicine are doing so and using different approaches because what they're finding in traditional Western medicine is that it's not getting them well. But I also think that there's a group... Of clinicians like myself who have made the
0: choice to go outside and to get trained and become practitioners in methodologies that would be considered quote-unquote outside but in fact are starting to not be considered outside because it's inside it's just a different view of what the medical community has been seeing one-third of my patients have always been physicians
1: Ah, see, there you go. If you look at how people consume traditional Western medical care, the one outlier group is physicians. They consume much less of it because they know what the limits of modern medicine are and they know the harm and the suffering that can come with consuming too much of that type of treatment. I'm not at all surprised that you see physicians.
0: And I wanted to give you a chance to either talk about anything you haven't talked about that you feel is really important that we've missed, or maybe there's something that's really of interest to you right now that people haven't been asking you about that you really want the listeners to know about.
1: Something that I'm really focused on right now and um, researching and writing about is process or behavioral addictions. These are addictions not to substances, but to behaviors like uh, sex, gambling, shopping, all manner of things that people engaged in now the natural history of which resembles remarkably the way that people use and become addicted to drugs. And I'm seeing more and more cases uh, presenting in my clinic, people seeking help for these types of addictions. And so i am become really fascinated by it. Many of my colleagues in the addiction field don't believe these are real addictions because they don't involve drugs that quote-unquote change the brain. I think that these behaviors tap into the exact same uh, motivational systems that we all have that have for uh, the entirety of human existence been central to our survival, which are now being co-opted by these these types of behaviors that lead to very serious addiction syndromes and cause a lot of devastation to people's lives. This is sort of what I'm working on now. I think that's very
0: important. I'm totally on the same page with you, particularly when I think neurobiologically about addiction, I think of a method of distraction. All those things are a method of distraction. Right. A method in which the nucleus accumbens be able to release some kind of (laughs) dopamine. reward. It's a quick fix that in the short term feels good. The long term doesn't feel so good, but we forget the long term. That's part of the nature of addiction. I don't know. I'm wondering why they would even dispute this.
1: I I don't know either. It seems to me, I mean, just in working with my patients, you know, the natural history is so similar. They start using this behavior either to have fun, so for recreation, or to solve a problem like depression or anxiety or sleep. Over time, they need more and more to get the same effect. They need higher potent versions. And they develop a kind of obsessive, compulsive orientation to the exclusion of other activities. And then it's having major impact on their lives. They want to stop. They can't. Um, So so it's very, very similar in its clinical manifestation. But, you know, we clinicians, people listen to us last, unfortunately. (laughs) Are you (laughs) writing another book? Yeah, I'm trying to. It's been very challenging because talking about sex addiction is hard. Because? My impression is that people are really sort of repulsed by it without recognizing that on some level, we all have the propensity for that.
0: They're repulsed by the idea that sexual activity could in fact be an addiction.
1: Yes. Well, your first book made a huge
0: splash and I think a really big difference. So this one will probably have a similar effect.
1: Well, I I sure hope so. The most rewarding thing for me about my book and entirely unexpected was that I think I helped some people and I think I was able to influence the national conversation in a positive direction. And that was, um, you know, very unexpected and very rewarding for me. So if I could even approximate that again, of course, that would be very nice. And I hope there's a chapter on device culture. I talk about that, but I'm very interested in the philosophical aspects of that. And that's what I'm trying to talk about. But yes, all of that is related because really our smartphones are sort of the equivalent of the hypodermic needle when it comes to these types of compulsive behaviors.
0: Well, this has been so enlightening and I thank you so much. You're so busy. I appreciate that you took even a little bit of your
1: time. Well, it was really a pleasure to meet you. You're such a thoughtful person. I'm glad there are people like you on the planet who are thinking slowly and thoughtfully um, and deeply about these problems. People are so quick to come to conclusions. It's always nice to meet somebody who's very thoughtfully wondering about things.
0: Well, I would say ditto. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on The Groundless Ground.